This is episode 20 of What's the Deal, Grosseal? The podcast that explores the people, places, history, and events that makes Grosseal unique. I'm your host, Ben Fote. Now this is another episode with a time warning. We talk for about 40 minutes, but it's worth it. If you have kids who are interested in nature and plants or technology, business, and electricity, make sure to listen through to the end. As always, there are a lot of links in the episode notes. Now for me, this episode begins in 2016. We were renting a flat in Hawthorne Glen in step one of our move to Michigan. We were accustomed to a house that was five times larger than that apartment, and we'd had about two acres of forested hillside before. So getting out and about was essential. I'd given up my life as a farmer's market vendor in Indiana, but I wanted to get connected with one here. That's when I learned about what was then Gardens of Hope. And over the next few years, I was so fortunate to meet some of the most wonderful people. Unfortunately, Mike Johnson is not with us anymore, but he really made what we're talking about today possible. Danielle West has been the energizer bunny of Community Grown Gardens for years now. She has stepped up to be one of the chief organizers of the gardens. And you're going to enjoy our conversation today. It's a real pleasure to talk with you today, Danielle. Community Grown Gardens has been part of our family for years, and we feel like everyone on the island should be involved with the programs that you have. Thanks for being on What's the Deal, Grosseal. Thanks for having me, Ben. And uh, likewise, uh, we feel like the Bread Brothers and, and your family is, is part of our family, too. Yeah, we, we're uh, looking forward to sharing those programs, and we agree everybody should be involved in the programs. There's something for everyone. Yeah, even just uh, in, in our last episode, there was a, a mention, or I guess two episodes now, somebody learned about the farm market just from, from the interview. So hopefully we'll spread that that word uh, really wide. Well, at least as wide as the island is. Yeah. So let's start with just the general stuff. So what Community Grown Gardens, where is it? Who's involved? Well, Community Grown Gardens uh, is a nonprofit urban farm in Groziel. We are actually located within Westcroft Gardens and Farm over on uh, West River Road there. We are not part of Westcroft, but we do rent land from them, a a chunk of land for them. Um, So we are two separate businesses, which is often hard for people to understand just at the, you know, at the introduction of things. Um, But anyways, we're nestled back on on Westcroft's property. And uh, we are four hoop houses and two outdoor gardens. So I'll talk a little bit more about that so so you, you understand kind of what the hoop houses are and, and uh, what we use them for. So we grow food year-round at uh, Community Grown Gardens, and we do that to provide food, but really to provide educational experiences for, for people, and in particular for school groups. In uh, Michigan, we are unable to connect agriculture to the school calendar, the traditional school calendar, just due to the growing season. Uh, So these hoop houses allow us to be able to take a student group through the entire life cycle of or growing cycle of a plant. Because we can extend our season with hoop houses, a student could potentially see the process from seed to harvest, which was impossible before we could extend our season in this way. So anyway, so we have three hoop houses. Uh, They're very large structures. Uh, I would say 30 by 70 is one of them. And the other two are more like 22, 24 by maybe 100. So they're, they're 
real big structures and they're filled with garden beds. Um, and we have three of those for growing food year round. Um, in addition, we have a another hoop house that is used as a utility space and a classroom space. So it's set up with a big giant wash, wash station because when you have a lot of produce going through, you need a way to, you know, at least knock the dirt off. Uh, we do not process food, so to speak, uh, but we do, you know, get it rinsed off for people. And then that, that room also holds all of our tools and other supplies that we need, including tables and chairs for, for visiting guests and uh, student groups. We have two outdoor gardens, too. That just helps us increase production, but it also helps us to be able to give people a demonstration on what gardening would look like without a hoop house. And as an educational facility, we feel that, uh, yes, it's great to be able to teach schools and, and school groups, but we want the wider community to have access to our educational services in terms of how they can grow food. And the best example for that is this is the time of year that you would plant it. This is the time of year that you would harvest it. So it's important to line up with what somebody's real-time calendar would be like. So, so yeah, I do want to point out, though, that these indoor hoop houses are, they're not greenhouses. They differ from greenhouses. And I think that, that that's a real confusing thing for people. So greenhouses are, are traditionally lighted with supplemental, you know, supplemental light, and they're heated with supplemental heat. In, in a hoop house, it only uses passive solar energy. So basically, there's this uh, this uh, kind of fancy plastic that we have over it that allows all the, the light to pass through and traps the heat. Uh, the heat cannot pass back out. So we get this kind of warmer environment there, but we don't have to use any energy to get it. So that's the term passive solar energy. Now, if there's not sun, we don't get that same kind of you know, heat. So there are cold days um, and our plants have to be strong enough to be able to survive that. So we have that, you know, specialty layer of plastic, but then we also have um, this other kind of hoop system without within our hoop houses that allows us to blanket our crops in the very coldest of times in Michigan um, so that we can protect them. That's really great. And in the summer, they get really hot, but there's ventilation too, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. It's really important. So it wouldn't be uncommon on a sunny day in the summer where it's 80, 85 outside for our hoop houses to get to 120 plus because of that passive solar energy. And, you know, plants are, are like humans in some ways, right? We, we like comfortable temperatures. Um, and each plant is a little unique. You know, some of them like cooler temperatures, those cool ranges like 70 degrees. Some of them prefer, you know, 80 or 90 like your tomatoes, but none of them like 120, I guarantee. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have to ventilate. So these hoop houses have, um, they have louvers built into the top because you know how air rises, right? So the hottest of the airs is way up high. Uh, so we ventilate there, but then they also have these mechanisms on the sides of the houses to where you can you can manipulate a crank and roll the sides up. So in the hotter or sunnier days, we open the sides up all the way, open the louvers as well, and then have the doors open to create as much um, 
air movement, pulling the cooler air from outside and get that hot air out, almost like a, a conduction oven, you know, keeping that air moving through um, just to stabilize temperatures and, and regulate temperatures in the house. So, yeah, they're really neat, those those hoop houses. So. They are. They are. And, you know, there's so much technology out there. And uh, we're going to get into a little bit this year with a project that we'll talk about later in this podcast. But there's just some really neat things that you can do with technology to uh, kind of stabilize the ventil- the temperatures using ventilation. So how did the gardens get started? Well, this is a great story. The The gardens got started about six years ago by two long-time area residents who were recently retired, Bob and Mike Johnson. And uh, Bob had come up from Florida and had a background, or excuse me, Mike had come up from Florida and had a background in business, but also uh, a heart in kind of serving, serving his community. Bob had recently retired from Wyandotte Schools as the agriculture teacher Um, He built all sorts of programs there. Future Farmers of America, uh, he ran that program. They did the flowers throughout Wyandotte with the students there. Just all sorts of great programs. But anyways, he had recently retired from his position there. And so the two of of these uh, guys here were, were scheming up a way to keep themselves busy and help their community at the same time. So what they what they kind of uh, settled on as a vision was to create a project that could feed people in need year-round in Michigan, that could connect students to agriculture in Michigan, and that could give the wider community, in, but including Westcroft Garden, a insight into what farming could look like in the future. And at the time, Michigan State University had uh, kind of been exploring and introducing this concept of this hoop house farming. And so they took some classes, wrote a grant, and uh, got that first hoop house put up on Westcroft's property. Um, and, and by the way, uh, I'd like to back up for just a second. And mm-hmm. um, this is just a really important piece is, is you know, they, they decided that Westcroft was really a great place to start this project because Westcroft, I, and I know you've done a podcast with them, but but for those who may not have, have heard this, uh, Westcroft Gardens and Farm is the oldest single family owned farm in Michigan, meaning it, it's not the oldest farm, but it's the oldest farm that stayed within the same family. It's It's been passed down seven generations. It's run by its eighth generation of management and actually has its ninth generation born on the property uh, two summers ago. So um, just a, a, an amazing historical place, you know, and, and that farm fed the people of Grozio uh, way back in the day. So what a great place to start a farming project, right? And that's episode two for anybody that wants to listen to that. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So um, just rich, rich history. And and uh, we, you know, we wanted to build on that story. So anyway, so they, they put that first hoop house up and the two brothers You know, they continued on uh, operating that with just a a couple of volunteers. And Westcroft, uh, through all of its phases, uh, had done all sorts of different uh, kind of growing and and, um, just different, you know, business projects throughout their many years of existence. And uh, it just so happened that they had these kind of empty frames on their property 
uh, where at one point they may have stored plants or something of that nature. So the Johnson brothers decided to see if they could retrofit one of those structures into a, a hoop house, a makeshift hoop house. Um, and there happened to be a structure right next to the big house that they had already written a grant for and put up. And, and so they, they refurbished that existing structure into another growing space. And that too was successful. They were able to successfully get crops in there. And this is about the time of the story where I came into the picture. So they had uh, started a farmer's market. I uh, happened upon the farmer's market and, and then happened upon the project once I was in conversation with them at the market. I really fell in love with, with the mission of feeding people in need. I had personally been trying to grow food in my own backyard for about three years at that point to some degree of success, but you know, definitely lacking in some ways and thought, well, this is a great way for me to learn how to do that better. And, and importantly, part of the reason I wanted to learn how to grow food or I wanted to have my own garden is because I felt this real, just all of a sudden my life just felt this real strong urge of importance for me to know how to grow food and to make sure that I could show my children how to do it. So the fact that their project was based on making sure that knowledge was passed down uh, was just really, you know, right on point with what I felt, you know, was was important right about the same time that that, that came to me. So it was just a, a great match. So I joined the project then and, and kind of helped the brothers with some, some outreach and some volunteer coordination and just some, you know, maybe... Uh, getting a few other groups in the island uh, behind it. Uh, we, we partnered with Northridge Church at that point, and uh, they came out and built our first outdoor garden behind the big house. I think I remember and, that. Yeah, yeah, that was a great project. Yeah. Yeah, they're a great group to work with, by the way. So that was successful, and uh, and then this is really kind of the turning point. At this point, it had been just a project, right? Like this this great project, and... And that summer, I want to say it was the summer of 2018, uh, there was about five of us that were really committed at that point, maybe six of us, Susan and Betsy included in that, who, who for anybody listening are two of our real long time, fantastically dedicated uh, volunteers. But um, we sat down and said, you know, this is a great project, but it could be more than a project. Like, Do we want to do this? Do we... And what would it take to do that? And so we we did. We sat down for a couple of different sessions and kind of mapped out what, what it would look like to take that next step forward. Um, we decided to increase our footprint, took that idea to Westcroft, and after some consideration, had that idea accepted and basically doubled our space, our growing space, and included that classroom environment that I had explained earlier in that growth or that expansion. And then also decided at that point to formalize the project into a business. Um, so went through that process and uh, also made some decisions that structurally that really we belonged in the nonprofit space. So applied for that 501c3 status, you know, just went through through the whole kind of uh, all the steps necessary to make that happen and uh, have have really been putting the pieces together ever since on on what that looks like to really become a, a a real functioning nonprofit business serving its community. You know, and that doesn't happen without a lot of support. 
Um, and, and we've just been really lucky. I mean, this story doesn't, doesn't happen. It wouldn't have taken place if we didn't have such a great community to build this story and the chapters of this story within. How has the pandemic affected everything this last, this last year? Well, there's been so much that has changed within our organization due to the pandemic. I mean, certainly some of the smaller things um, in terms of, you know, changing some of our processes, you know, when, you know, certain mask wearing times and glove wearing times and that kind of thing. But we'll talk about the big picture changes. Number one, the demand for food within our pantries has skyrocketed. So we have always felt a real big sense of pride, I guess, or accomplishment um, tied around uh, the food that we donate, which we didn't even talk about that at the beginning, which excuse me that I, I didn't do that. When oh. We talked about what Community Grown Gardens is. For, for all the people listening, uh, we grow food year round and we never talked about what we did with that food. So uh, we have a lot of food access programs and uh, some of them go to paying customers in the community, but about half of our food is donated to food pantry, Meals on Wheels, and other food access programs that uh, support food insecure families. So, um, And that's a big driver for our volunteers. So we've seen that need in pantries go up uh, substantially. And so we have made sure that we have kept enough food available to increase our donations to help address those those needs within within those communities. So so that's one one major change due to the pandemic is is the the demand for you know food donations has gone up. Um, another thing we have really that's really changed uh, for us is that school groups aren't coming on to our property. Right, schools are are either not opened and if they are open, it's, it's kind of for the basics right now. Right. And they are not, they're not going off site. So uh, they definitely, uh, you know, put a little uh, stop in our plans of, of our educational outreach and, and, but it's okay. Pauses are okay. And it gave us some time to reflect on what programs I think ultimately will serve students the best. It gave us some time to really focus on our, our food programs and and we know that that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and those kids will come back but i will say this we really miss them really uh, we had one group that that came every week with a lot of teaching helpers and so we miss that energy that they brought to the farm they only came and worked for about an hour but uh you know we spent probably about an hour preparing for them you know, so that was uh, every Tuesday afternoon. That was what we did, right? We got ready for the kids and or the students, excuse me, and um, and then you know we we enjoyed that afternoon with them, and and uh, they loved being there. Um, so again, kind of like that was a piece that drives our volunteers with the food donations. That's another piece that drives our volunteers is is you know helping uh, youth and and um, students. So. Uh, we missed that piece, and we can't wait to get that piece back. But you adapted with a family program last summer, right? Yeah, we did. We did make some adaptations, absolutely. And it's not, I shouldn't um, say that education has stopped entirely. Uh, certainly, we are still educating master gardeners who who come on site and other volunteers who want training. Uh, that never stopped. Uh, we never shut down fully because we are an organization both that provides and grows food. So 
you know, anything agriculture didn't shut down, but also any organization that provided relief was never shut down. So we always functioned, you know, as long as we had our volunteers felt safe about coming, they were, they were always uh, allowed to come. But anyways, yes, we did go ahead when we felt like we could safely bring groups in over the summer. We did uh, open up um, to a couple of field trips from building blocks. And uh, we just changed some of the formatting for what we would have done in the past. Uh, We just split kids up into groups that they traveled in, kind of like centers or stations, that idea that, that schools use so that you know, kids were essentially traveling with, you know, four or five other kids instead of 15 or 20 other kids. So we did a couple of those uh, educational experiences. And then we also opened ourselves up to some family days. Um, And that was in the early fall. And uh, families could sign up to rotate through basically those same kind of center approach learning activities. And both of those programs were, were really successful. They went off really well. So and, and just gave us some more insight into what kinds of things we can we can do for the community. So, and I, I should say one more thing. Uh, another way that the pandemic affected our programs, which is something that we'll always keep now, is uh, we had always done an in-person farmers market until last year. You know, we we didn't feel like uh, it was a wise decision to do an in-person market. You know, we're we're functioning on somewhat limited resources, so to plan something and coordinate something as big as a farmer's market is is tough in a normal year, but to do it during a pandemic was just something we didn't feel like we could uh, take on and to keep up with all the kind of regulations and things like that that might be necessary. We just weren't, weren't sure we were the right people to do that at the time. So uh, we developed a online market and uh, it turns out our the entire time our website had the capability to have um, <laughs> stuff of uh, for sale online, so so now we'll never uh, we'll never go go without that that online component to a market. Even when we do go back to an in person market, we'll keep that feature as well. Well, and even uh, twenty nineteen, I believe, is when you started the CSA program, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about this? Is that happening in twenty twenty one? Yeah. All right. Yeah, we will have a CSA. I'd love to talk about the CSA. That's actually my favorite food program. Um, So a CSA is actually a term that stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And the idea behind it is basically your community can and should support your local farmers. And knowing that farmers, you know, are in their, uh, you know, hardest months throughout the winter, what happens is, is people sign up for or, you know, pledge support and, and put their money towards this CSA program in those hardest months. So, you know, maybe January, February, a CSA sale opens, people purchase that membership, the farmer then has money to buy the supplies they need to get their, you know, growing season started, their seeds, their soil, what, you know, amendments, all those things. And then in turn, for the purchase of that membership, all the CSA members get a share of the farm produce for the growing season. It's an interesting program because, you know, if a farmer has uh, some kind of a disaster, right, like something happens, you're going to have a little bit less of your share uh, in your share that year. And if the farmer happens to have a, a just a season with just, you know, great success, you're going to see extra in your share that season. 
So that's, you know, kind of an interesting uh, spin on things. But the bottom line is, is you're always supporting supporting uh, local agriculture and, you know, local growing. And that's, that's just uh, something we feel is important. Another reason I really like the CSA is uh, it really forces people to kind of explore with new foods, right? So if you're just shopping at a farm market, you're going to select the things that you kind of already are comfortable with, mm-hmm. um, that you know you like. If you are a member of a CSA, you get what you get, right? You're going to get those <laughs> tomatoes, but you're also going to get that ground cherry or that husk cherry in there that you've never tried before. And so, of course, being an educational um, entity, uh, focused entity, uh, we never put things in there without a little bit of uh, instruction and lesson on them. And so with our farm share program, we include a weekly email describing what's in your share along with some recipes that may help you understand uh, how to use those foods. So uh, we, we learned our lesson a few times when uh, people would do things like get a husk cherry and um, not know to take the husk off it before they ate it. So <laughs> you have to be willing to uh, help teach people too uh, when you're giving them new foods. So Anyways, that is one of our, one of my anyways, and I think overall as an organization, one of our most favorite programs for getting food out to people. So also we talked about, uh, you know, people going to the market and not picking those things, but will there be a Saturday market again this year? Is that in the plans? There is not a Saturday market, uh, sadly, from our coordinating standpoint. We just don't have the capacity to do that this year. We've had, you know, the pandemic has has caused a lot of kind of uh, shifts and changes in in people's lives in general, and we just didn't feel like we had the volunteer capacity to coordinate everything that it might take to coordinate a market this year. So there may be a market still happening that we could be part of, just not the coordinating entity for at this time. Okay. But I do want to say that it is something that we really value, that in-person interaction in that market. And I still believe that our community is a great place to have that. And that if we can kind of get over this, um, once, once we kind of get over this hump, we will be, uh, we will be happy to bring that back. (laughs) All right. So you talked about that there, there are some, uh, commercial sources that, that buy uh, the produce. Where are some places where we can get food that's prepared with the produce from community growing gardens? Yes. So right now we sell to, we we have sold to three different restaurants in the past. Right now, the only one we are selling to is the Promenade in downtown Trenton. And that has just been one of the most um, enjoyable partnerships and relationships that we have experienced. And they've expanded Uh, into the Fisher Building. Yes. Isn't that exciting? It is. Yeah. yeah. So we we haven't had any produce and so we haven't connected with them in a couple of months, but we should have stuff coming in very soon here. But yeah, they if you uh, go in and eat those uh, tomato sandwiches they have in the summer, those are our tomatoes. If you have their salads, you know, that's our kale mixed in, you know, and just all sorts of other things, you know, eggplant they have something with eggplant there's a there's a pretty fair chance that it came from our farm um zucchinis things like that so and in the past we we uh had tried out some explored some partnerships with uh the yacht club the Groziel yacht club and and then when the promenade had opened up 
there they had another cafe that they opened that is now closed. But in Wyandotte, uh, we were supplying them as well. So we may or may not take on another restaurant. We'll see. We are really going to see what we can do to increase production. So we're trying a few new growing strategies this year that would potentially increase our production to the point where we could, you know, expand to sell to more restaurants. So, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Great. And of course, if anybody wants to learn how to do those techniques, they can come and volunteer. That's right. We are always recruiting volunteers. What's Um, the best way to, to volunteer? So the best way to volunteer, if, if, you're interested in any information at all, the place to start is our website, communitygrowngardens.org. And once you get to that landing page, there's some navigation that's that's pretty clear at the top. If you want to see what programs we offer, there is you know a tab for programs. If you want to volunteer, there's a tab for volunteer. So if you if you uh, found yourself interested in volunteering, you could go to communitygrowngardens.org, head over to our volunteer page, and right on that page uh, is posted our volunteer schedule for the 2021 year. So you can see on Tuesdays, we're working on general gardening um, and education. So if you are interested in learning gardening techniques, you would perhaps sign up for Tuesdays. On Wednesdays is the day where we prepare food for the food pantry. So if what you're interested in is helping to serve people in need, then you would maybe sign up for Wednesdays and on and on. So that volunteer schedule exists and is posted on that page. And then below that volunteer uh, schedule is a contact form. So you would just put in your information, your name, uh, what volunteering you want to do and submit that. And that comes across to us and we can reach out. The first thing that would happen is we would schedule a tour so that you could get acclimated to the project and get an orientation on, you know, kind of here's where we keep the tools and this is how, you know, how we ask you to clean the tools when you're done. And, you know, this is, these are all the people uh, who are here on this day and and that whole kind of uh, training kind of uh, plan. And then uh, basically just start coming and we put you to work. (laughs) And uh, it's, it's, it's nice because, I mean, really, we do ask that if you sign up for Tuesdays, you come on Tuesdays and or just let somebody know. But there's always enough of us that, you know, it's you just tell somebody I can't be there on Tuesday and and it's not a problem. So we have some people who work every program, you know, uh, and then we have other people who are strictly Wednesday people. So there's all sorts of different opportunities for volunteering. And I should say, while we're talking about volunteering, you know, you don't have to be a gardener to volunteer. I mean, we are completely, other than uh, one staff person who's part-time, we are completely volunteer-run organization. So, you know, hey, if you've got some marketing skills and this sounds like something you want to help grow, reach out. You know, even if you can sit with us once a year and, and help us make a little bit of a better brochure, you know, that helps us. And, you know, really, ultimately, what we're trying to do is is too big for what we have right now to do it. So uh, we're always looking to recruit people and, and really build this project out to what it could be. Something we need to talk about are the the grant that, that you guys are going to be working on this summer and, and also the STEM shadow program. Yeah. Yeah. So really exciting thing that happened this year. And I, I have to say, I, I just, I was just floored that that we're to the point that a, a foundation recognized our work enough to to grant us this 
opportunity, but this year we were granted a $25,000 grant from the HDR Foundation. Um, and HDR is a worldwide engineering company. It's an employee-owned company, and the employees of HDR can contribute to the foundation. And then what happens is, is people working in HDR serve out on projects in their community. And then if they want to, they can kind of recommend a, a organization that they serve in to be granted. Now the organization has to do all the work as far as writing the grant and executing the grant. But anyways, that that happened with us this year. An HDR employee, Grozio resident, Lara Saraki, took us under her wing, I guess, so to speak, as, as the project that she wanted to bring to the foundation. And we wrote a grant to power the farm, which is so exciting. You know, we have been operating this whole project with uh, no electricity, other than we occasionally drag uh, a series of um, extension cords across the farm so that we could maybe run a cultivator, an electric cultivator and or a fan to cool our employee, our, our um, volunteers down. And that is, that is a long distance to run an electric cord. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a real pain to do it the way we've been doing it all this time. So, but anyways, you know, I mean, with, with everything we've been doing to really build this into an educational facility that's used more frequently you know, you can imagine electricity is is not really like something that you can go without anymore. So anyways, the plan and the project is written for bringing traditional power to two of our houses, classroom, and growing house, just because that, that growing house is so close in proximity, it's silly not. And we, ha- and, and we had to bring regular power because some of our plans are, are things that just couldn't be powered with solar power, right? Like we need to get a cooler. We need a walk-in cooler. And there is really no way that some solar panels are going to do the job to power, you know, a a big walk-in cooler. So we had to bring that traditional power in. But then the other, another piece of the grant is to put a solar panel at, at the base of each of the growing houses. That solar panel then is wired into I don't know if it's wired, but it's connected into a a storage. Maybe maybe it's a battery, um, so that it can store that collected energy. And then that battery is hooked up to a motor, and that motor is hooked up to our sides of our hoop houses. So now what happens is we have a regulator, a temperature, you know, regulator or sensor. I guess it's a sensor inside of our hoop houses. And we've got that set to a certain temperature. So if we have plants in there that thrive at 70, we have our our sensor set to 70. And once our house reaches above 70, it signals down to, you know, in whatever way that information travels, it signals down so that that motor kicks on and it rolls up the sides of the house so that the houses ventilate and, and can regulate and stay at that kind of optimum temperature. So that should create healthier plants, but then also alleviate some of the work for the volunteer team, right? Because this hoop house growing is pretty labor intensive. So like I mentioned, the sun comes in and it can warm those houses up just so quick. So you've got to have somebody ready to run out as soon as that sun comes out, if it's going to stay out, right? Like you might think it's going to be cloudy all day long. And so you leave all the houses closed up. Well, 
you know, those clouds break and the sun's going to be out for a couple of hours. If you don't get up there and ventilate, you're going to bake your plants. So, you know, this kind of alleviates the need for us to be running back and forth, or at least some of the need for it. Uh, and so creates healthier plants, but but really optimizes some of our, our volunteer time as well. So that's another piece. So we have the traditional power, we have the solar power, which, you know, those things are fantastic because not only does that help our farm function, but what that does, folks, is that gives us a teaching opportunity, right? Like I mentioned so many times, we're an educational farm. So now we're bringing those student groups in and not only can we show them sustainable agriculture, now we can talk to them about energy. You know, we can talk to them about why we have traditional power in some places and why we have solar power in some places. We can talk to them about why we have active solar power and why we have passive solar power. You know, we, we can really point out the differences within a project and uses for all of those different types of energy. So what a really cool and unique learning tool we have now because of this grant. And I think that's the real power behind this grant, right? It's not that they just powered our farm. It's that they just gave us a learning tool that really, I don't know where else exists. So then on top of that, so we, we went all crazy with this, just so everybody knows, because it's just so cool. So then we also wrote into the grant that we would like these uh, solar building kits. So the students who come and they, they learn the sustainable agriculture exists, right? We can do better growing for our environment, right? We can, we can grow food. We can feed the people in our environment. We can meet the energy demands in our environment. We can do so in a way that doesn't harm our environment. So we've done all of those great lessons with these kids visiting the farm. And then we sit down and we have this uh, solar bug that we can build with them. So HDR Foundation funded the purchase of 500 solar bug kits. So each student who visits can sit down and, and you know, build this solar powered bug. It, it comes pre-wired because that was, you know, wiring was a little more intense than we wanted to get into. But uh, anyways, there there is some construction that's necessary. And then the bug moves after it's built based on uh, the capturing of solar energy. So, But no stingers, right? Yeah, no stingers. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and uh, and then lastly, the other piece of this grant is that we are we are executing this grant with a group called the STEM Shadow Group. The intention of of this student group, or or our intention with this student group, is to take a group of of learners. We envision that group to be somewhere between middle school and you know maybe just recently graduated high school but take them through the entire basically project process with us um, and have them work alongside our volunteers and HDR engineers as we work through the project to power the farm. Those people who are part of that group will be doing things like managing the budget. Now, you know, they're not going to have access to the bank account necessarily, but they're going to keep track of that. You know, they're going to be keeping track of the task list they're going to be maybe setting up the Google Drive. They're going to be on site when the the you know the the construction people are on site, um, just to really familiarize that group with what it really takes in a real world to manage and execute a project. So, some real world uh, experience for some students, and uh, we are still accepting applications for that program. Again, I drive you to the website communitygrowngardens.org. And under our programs tab, because this is an educational program, you will see an introductory video 
to the whole grant project, as well as the application process for that, which is, folks, super easy. A two-minute video of, of yourself answering the questions. So. All right. And I'll make sure to include a link specifically to that, too. So. Oh, thanks, Ben. Yeah. All right. Is there a cutoff date for that? You know, I should go and update it on the website because we had originally put it as this week. But the problem is, is we didn't get the word out. Uh, okay. We just, you know, like so many projects, uh, you, you got to get a little bit behind as you figure out how to get it started. So I would say at this time, it's ongoing. Applications are open ongoing. So All disregard right. any But deadline. as soon as possible. But as soon as possible so that you can be part of the whole project. There Thank you. you. Great point. Of course, you know that I always end with the big question. So what wish would you grant Grossiel if you could? So I guess long term and in relation to our project and just me as an island resident, part of why I love living here, kind of the capture of all of that, um, is that as we continue to move ourselves into a more technological world that we do not lose sight of you know, the natural world that's out there and that we continue to get out there within our families. um, But then, you know, really going to have to prioritize making sure our children going forward have some of that knowledge. So that would be it. Let's just uh, not lose sight of the natural world. And you're doing a great job to that effect. Oh, thanks, so, Ben. I want to thank you for your time today. You know, our whole family appreciates you and all the work that all the volunteers have done. And we really admire your energy and we're thankful very much for everyone that's making things happen in the gardens. Thank you so, yeah. so much. Thanks for having me on today. And and just to the wider community of Groziel, thanks for all the support that you've shown the gardens. You've made us what we are. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks again, Danielle. My goal is to shoot some video out at the hoop houses to release a video version of this episode on YouTube. If that happens, I'll share it on the Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as on the new Facebook group. Those are great ways to ask questions or comment about any of the episodes. The group has some additional content as well. Well, that's it for today. I tried to make it as short as I could. What's the Deal Gross Eel is recorded and produced by me, Ben Fote. You can keep in touch with me through the What's the Deal Gross Eel Facebook page or email me at whatsthedealgi at gmail.com. You can share episodes from Facebook or hear them from the website whatsthedealgi.com. And of course, it never hurts to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes through your favorite podcast delivery tool like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so many others. Our intro and credit music is Mocktails in the Rain by Auntie Ludo which is used through a Creative Commons license. Find more of his music on soundclick.com as Auntie's Instrumentals. Thanks for listening to What's the Deal, Grossiel? <laughs>